All right, let's get started this morning. Our text comes from Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Short, brief verse. Shouldn't be any real difficulty with it. It follows our study of verses 4 and 5, where we saw an example of God's judgment on the fallen angels that infiltrated the human race in the day of Noah, and we saw the deliverance of Noah and his family. So now in Second Peter 2.6, we're given yet another example, an example of God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, in which it simply says, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them with an overthrow, making an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Well, on previous occasion, you have heard me say, and I probably will continue to say until Peter corrects me, that Peter said that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. Matter of fact, we read that in the first chapter of this second epistle, where Peter said Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. I don't have any problem with what Paul wrote. I'm able to follow along, and I guess maybe we're on the same wavelength when I take the Greek text and work it through with what Paul said, it just falls into order and and I stand amazed at the detail and uh, all of the attributes that the language brings under the pen of the Apostle Paul. On the other hand, when I sat down with Peter <laughs> and I opened the Greek text, I am reminded he was a fisherman and I am also reminded that he spoke Aramaic. And that's all he spoke. But when it came his turn to write Scripture, he had to write in Koine Greek. But of course, we have to remember that God gave the spiritual gift of languages to them. And of course, the Holy Spirit is the one that dictates the words And they simply write it down. I wonder if Peter had a hard time understanding what Paul said. I wondered if he had a harder time understanding what the Holy Spirit said through his pen and how he dealt with that. The language of the New Testament, of course, is Koine Greek. And I have told my students through the years that in order to effectively translate and work with the Greek and bring it into English, you have to develop a Greek mindset. You have to think Greek. And we're not wired that way. Our education, our training, our our schematic has always been around the English language. Oh, I took Spanish uh, when I was in junior high school. It was... It was really interesting because the teacher was French. Her major in college was English. And that was the first semester she was teaching Spanish. And she had a nervous breakdown and quit before the semester was over. So I don't, I'm not very fluent in the Spanish, but I saw that in the Spanish there was a correlation with the Greek. And of course, you may not know that, but Spanish is derived from the Greek. We always thought it was derived from Latin, huh? Well, it's derived from the Greek. Latin made its contribution, but um, but that's the case. So when I broke this simple verse out to examine it in 
the Greek. I said, Peter, if I could just get my hands on you. The word order, of course, in Greek is different than the word order in English. And the main reason for that is because they did not have any punctuation. There was really no need for punctuation for the Greek that had that Greek mindset, that had that training, and as Alexander the Great put it together, he actually took five Greek dialects that are very different from each other and merged them into one language that he called Koine, common, common Greek, and required his troops to learn the language And the first book that was printed in Koine Greek, or written, not printed, but written in Koine Greek, was a military handbook. And Alexander made his troops memorize the handbook in Greek before they set out to conquer the world. It worked pretty well. He conquered all the known world in a very short period of time. And then wherever he conquered people, he made them learn his language. He would not sign a treaty with them until they learned Koine Greek. But we are far removed from that today. And uh, I've always been fascinated since I discovered the language when I was 13. I've been fascinated with that which it conveys. There are just volumes of information. And, and as you will recognize more information than you're really interested in (laughs) in a sermon or in a time of study together. The word order of this verse had me working with it and some of the grammar that's in it had me working with it. I, um, I went back to my old notes. I've taught Second Peter several times. And I found out in my old notes, I kind of glossed over this. <laughs> I may I, I approached it more from the English than I did from the Greek. But in attempting to just give a simple translation, this is what I wrote. And the cities, would you notice the word the is in brackets? That means it's not in the text. So, and cities of Sodom and Gomorrah covering, and then you'll notice them is in brackets, it's not in the text, covering with ashes by an overthrow, condemned an example to men intended to live ungodly, having established. See, having established really belongs before that statement for an example. Having established an example is the way it's translated into our English book. Why would he, after saying all that, that uh, they were an example to all that would live ungodly and then throw in having established? So it doesn't follow with our English thinking But that's the exclamation point. Because they didn't have punctuation, he took that word, and having established as one word in the Greek, he took that word and put it out of place in the sentence to get the reader's attention. And so that's the way you will find the the Greek grammar is structured. Now having said that, let's look at this verse and then see what God has truly intended for us in revealing this to us. So, the English text says, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That word and takes us back. It's what we call a coordinating conjunction or a connective conjunction. It takes us back to what he said before. He had given us the example of the fallen angels infiltrating humanity 
with an attempt to destroy the ability for the seed of the woman to triumph over Satan. If Satan could could turn all of humanity into half angel and half uh, human, then there would be no pure seed to pay for sin of Adam and Eve or for any of humanity and he would have defeated God. But he got pretty close, we saw in our study last time. He got to the point where there was only one family. There were eight people left that had not been infiltrated when God brought the flood and destruction upon the earth. So, that is an example to us about God's judgment. He took those and placed them in the bottomless pit, those fallen angels that had cohabited. He put them in the bottomless pit. He destroyed all of their progeny and all the infiltrated human beings, but Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives, according to God's statement in Genesis 6, if you waited another 20 years, there wouldn't be any seed that had not been infiltrated. And so we have the destruction and the reestablishment of society. What's to prevent them from doing that today? God. Why did He allow it before? You'll have to take that up with Him when you sit with Him uh, when we get to glory and have all of our lists of things we want to talk to Him about. We're not given... Uh, a great deal of information uh, about that, but we are given the assurance that there is a payday coming. That judgment is going to come. They are incarcerated there. They've been incarcerated there since the, the time of Noah, and they are not going to be uh, sentenced, or they're not going to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone until after the millennial age. But they are in darkness. But they're going to get out of there. They're going to be released in the middle of the tribulation. And they are going to wreak havoc on the earth. They not have any ability to kill, but they'll make people wish they were dead, beg to be dead, and can't die, according to the Scripture. So that is the conjunction taking us back and in addition to His judgment and reserving judgment for them, they're the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I find it, again, of interest that as God gives us illustration and issues us warning He uses some of the most familiar stories that uh, we are exposed to. Well, I wouldn't say the angelic uh, conflict was an infiltration was a familiar story. It's been taught in in the Jewish uh, synagogues. It was taught in the early church, but we've kind of gotten away from it. It has very prominent place uh, in Scripture. But the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is one of those stories that we are well acquainted with. And he uses it here as an example that it would seem like he's not judging. That, yeah, they are incarcerated, but he hasn't done, uh, hasn't cast them into the lake of fire and brimstone that was prepared before the foundation of the earth yet. They have not yet been cast in. But the people that lived in Sodom and Gomorrah are the example to us in this text. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are actually five cities in that Lycus Valley that were judged and were destroyed at that, at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Sodom and Gomorrah being the two most prominent. The word Sodom in the text is a neuter gender. 
And the word Gemara is a feminine gender. The distinction with the neuter is that it is being emphasized as an example. The thing that is being emphasized with the word Gemara is that they are an example because they responded negatively to God's devised plan and followed Satan in the uh, homosexuality and lesbianism uh, lifestyle. And so that's the reason the writer Peter emphasizes that it is a response on their part. We have free will. We have choice. And because of the choice they made, God turned them to ashes. That word, tephrosos, is a participle, which means this is a principle that God followed. He, as a matter of principle, in a point of time, burned those cities to ashes. God has established His principles that we are to live by. He has established principles by which He is identified, and we would do well to recognize that God has given us seven basic principles that we are to utilize in this lifetime lifestyle that He sets forth for us in uh, the mechanics of living the Christian life. So the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, He has, matter of principle, turned them into ashes with an overthrow. That phrase, with an overthrow, catastrophe, you probably recognize just by the sound of it, that must be catastrophic. Uh, catastrophe. And, uh, and that's where the word comes from. It's a good word. Sometimes the scribes liked it even better than the original writer because that word is not found in the older manuscripts. It's found in the manuscripts that the King James were translated from, 10th century manuscripts. But when we go back to the 1st and 2nd century, remember the manuscripts were all hand copied. And uh, there are a few through the years of it being hand copied. By the time it got to the 10th century, when the King James manuscripts, uh, the manuscripts used to make the King James translation were used, it had passed on from one writer to another writer, copiers, a copyist after copyist. You know, Kinko's was not the first copy business. But the in the Greek world, uh, they had scriptoriums. And you could take a document in and you could say, I want five copies of this document. Oh, all right. So they would bring in five scribes and a reader. And one, the reader would read and the five scribes would write down what he read and when they finished it, you have your document. Five copies of your document. It's amazing how well the Word of God has been preserved with that kind of writing down because sounds can be fooling. And what you hear and what I hear is not always the same. Of course, I I wouldn't have been able to work at the scriptorium with my hearing handicap unless I was the reader. But uh, there, for all of the years, the centuries, and all of the means, there is less than 1% distinction between all more than... 5,000 manuscripts that have been assembled. Less than 1% disagreement. And that 1% is always in an area such as this. 
And it's very apparent from the early um, critiquers that some scribe kind of got carried away and inserted this in with an overflow. It doesn't change the meaning of it. And that 1% of discrepancy between all the 5,000 plus manuscripts that we have, no major doctrine, no real point of doctrine is confused in that it's always in something similar to this. He condemned Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example. Yeah, he did overthrow them. But the point is, Katakrinan, in a point of time, he passed judgment on them. The the indicative mood is a simple statement of fact, and he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes. This word condemned, could I point out to you that uh, it is given to us to express the action and to enforce the message of this whole passage. There is coming a payday. What is going on in our society today, what is going on uh, in our government, what is going on in our society, that which is even going on in many of our churches, we shake our head and ask, how can God tolerate that? Why doesn't He just strike them dead? And then we think for a minute and we remember our behavior and we say, thank you God (laughs) that you're long-suffering. But the condemnation is coming. And He condemned them making an example to all that should live ungodly. Making an example. We notice that in the action of God burning those cities to ashes, He set for us an example. We have uh, uh, an aorist active participle. I hate to get too much Greek, but let me... That form of grammar identifies that what is being described there, he turned the cities into ashes. That's an aorist active participle. That action has to occur before the action of the main verb. The main verb is he condemned them. And before he condemned them, he burned the city to ashes. The action indicates he burned to ashes and that action takes place before the open condemnation, the open judgment came. He's not through with them. As I said, there is a payday coming and that payday will be following the tribulational period and when the lake of fire and brimstone is inhabited. Now he gave an example to those that should live ungodly. Those that would make it a matter of principle to live ungodly. That word ungodly is a short word, but it carries a lot of weight. It actually should be translated to those who continuously purpose to deny their duty to God, which is characterized by a refusal to do that which is pleasing to Him. Not just ungodly. No, it's those that make it their purpose to deny their duty to God, which is characterized by a refusal to do that which is pleasing. To God. Years ago, when I pastored in Chowchilla, California, I was the director of the youth program for all the churches, all the Southern Baptist churches in that area. I was the pastor assigned to oversee their rallies and help them uh, in their program. 
And we put together a program one time. I said, well, we got through it, but I'd never do it again, I didn't think. I was doing a little word study and I ran across the word atheist. I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary. And Webster gave the classic definition of an atheist, one who denies there's a God or does not believe in a God. And then the last statement in that Webster Dictionary on that word said, also one who refuses to do his duty to God. Wow. So I, talking with the youth, I said, uh, we're atheists. And I explained what I had found, and I said, now here's what, we want, what I want to do. I want us to set up a debate at our rally between our youngest pastor in the area that was just setting the world on fire. Um, he was to be the next Billy Graham, but we never did have a next Billy Graham. Uh, he was a great preacher. Just, I think it was 24 years old. I was, I was probably old, man. I was probably 26. <laughs> he, yeah, when he first, he may have been just 20 or 21. Anyway, God was really blessing to him, uh, pastoring a church in, uh, Fresno, California. So I said, we, we'll get him and then I'm going to furnish an atheist and we'll advertise to the churches we're going to have a debate. We're going to have a debate between this pastor, Jerry Fleming, and Bill White, an atheist. Well, it almost got out of hand. I guess it did get (laughs) out of hand. We promoted it for a couple of months. Now, they didn't know that I was coming from Webster's dictionary definition, one who refuses to do his duty to God. Bill White, Bill White was my partner in, in Rapid Automotive repair there in town. He was song leader in our church. But as we got to talking like uh, about this situation, I told him he was an atheist and showed him in the in the dictionary where he was. And uh, so our intent, my intent was to not let Jerry Fleming know that Bill was a member of my church, but that he was simply advertised as an atheist. And, uh, and then we would let that thing build up with the debate back and forth between them and then Bill would make his confession that he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, had accepted Christ as his Savior and been baptized, but was not always serving the Lord like... And he said, Pastor, why don't you come and read the definition? So that was the intent. I was to get up and read the definition. But when, I, when we got to the meeting, it was at Madeira out in the church, out in the country. And um, the deacons met me in the parking lot and they said, we will not allow an atheist to speak from our pulpit. And I said, well, that's all right. We'll just move the pulpit aside. <laughs> and uh, he won't. No, he's not going, we're not going to allow an atheist to speak on our platform. And I said, you guys have known me a long time. I will not do anything that will destroy or affect the impact of your church. I Just trust me in this. I don't trust anybody who says, just trust me, do you? But I said that to them. Just trust me in it. So they said, well, if we can sit on the platform... So I put a deacon's row up there on the platform and it went pretty good with Bill's presenting the general 
view of an atheist about God, the creation, and all of that. And then Jerry got up and did a rebuttal on that, and then he made his speech, and Bill got up to make a rebuttal on that. We had it structured like a formal debate. And it people started a lynch mob. <laughs> they wanted him out of there and um, were yelling at him and things. Finally, it, it got to the point where I had to interrupt and say, Mr. White has a statement to make. And he said, the view that I've expressed to you might well have been mine had I not had a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ years ago received Christ as my, as my personal Savior. And it went through the crowd. He's a Christian. He's a Christian. He's a, it just went all through the crowd. And our director of missions was not happy with me at all. He had been Bill White's pastor at one time. <laughs> and uh, he said uh, he, he, that Bill White was passing himself off as an atheist. So I said, Bill, I think it's time for you to read the definition of an atheist. So he broke open the dictionary and he read the classic description of an atheist, also one who ignores or refuses his service, his duty to God. He said, I'm guilty of that. He said, turned to Jerry Fleming, he said, Pastor Fleming, I think we got a lot of people that are guilty of that. Why don't you take it from here? So we had a rededication, all, you know, the Southern Baptist Isle Walk uh, just maxed everything out. Uh, we got through it, but like I said, I'd probably never <laughs> tackle that again, I was young enough then that, that uh, I was willing to. But we made a point. And that point people are talking about today. That was in 1964. <laughs> and those that are living are still talking about it, about it today. The recognition that when we deny God's direction in our life and doing the will of God in our life, we are in the same category as an atheist. This verse enforces that at this particular point. With this word, ungodly. Ungodly is... The, defin the definition of that is to continually deny your duty to God, which is characterized by a refusal to do that which is pleasing to God. Some manuscripts have this as an adjective, some have it as an infinitive. It doesn't make, doesn't change the application of it. Denying one's duty to God which is characterized by an attitude that refuses to do that which is pleasing to God. So the sixth verse of Second Peter 2 should read this way. And the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he as a matter of principle, in a point of time, burned to ashes with an overthrow. He in a point of time passed judgment as an example for those intending to continuously purpose to deny their duty to God, which is characterized by a refusal to do that which is pleasing to Him. He established this principle. Such a timely warning for our day, huh? The timeliness related to the present time is recognized uh, daily in our observance of news and activities in our society. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32, set for us that parallel. Paul is the writer, and he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's the standard that God established for us. But we need to understand God's judgment is fair because we first of all note, beginning at verse 18 of this text, that the entire world has been introduced to God. Throughout my years of ministry, I've repeatedly been asked, but what about those who have never heard? There is no such critter. Let me explain. Paul writes in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. The whole world has been introduced to God. God has introduced Himself to the whole world. He has done that in creation. Romans chapter 10 verse 18 says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the end of the world. The world has been exposed to God. But when they knew God, many of them were not thankful. Look at verse 21 in Romans 1. Because that when they knew God, They glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. When man sees creation He is introduced to God. He makes a judgment at that point. Does he go with the evolutionist? Or does he go with the revelation of God? If he desires to know God on God's terms, God has promised to get him gospel information. But when they reject him, then... God gives them up to uncleanness. Verse 24 and 25 of Romans 1. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and they worshiped and they served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. The first manifestation of a society or a culture that denies God is LBGTQXYZWX and all the following. That is the first biblical manifestation of a society that denies God. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. For this cause... 
God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was me. The demand that we are exposed to today in our society to accept this way of life is the manifestation we have not been thankful to God. We will not allow God His rightful place in our society. And that movement has expanded dramatically. That's the first sign of a nation that denies God. Excuse me. <clears throat> that denies God. Is there really any question where we are in society today? America's run the whole gamut. We started off, regardless of what the new historians say, as a Christian nation. And we have followed the cycle of great civilizations throughout the history that's ever been recorded. It identifies that a people in bondage develop spiritual faith. And that they move from spiritual faith to great courage. And from great courage to liberty. And from liberty to abundance. But from abundance to complacency, and from complacency to apathy, and from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back to bondage. That's where we are in this world today. That's where America is. We love the government taking care of us and become dependent. Upon it. Paul wrote in Romans then, beginning at verse 28 of that first chapter, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but they have pleasure in them that do them. Look again at the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is recorded in the book of Genesis. The judgment and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah has always been a testimony and a warning to all unbelievers of what God thinks of their unbelief. It's a testimony to what God thinks of homosexuality in particular. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 33, Moses wrote, All its land and brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, no grass grows on it. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboleam, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and in His wrath. Isaiah used the cities as an example in Isaiah 1, 9, and 10. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He was referring to Israel. Sodom and Gomorrah were historical accounts. At that point. 
Jeremiah used the cities in illustration in chapter 22, verse 14. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they've strengthened the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and the inhabitants like Gomorrah. In his book of Lamentations, Jeremiah wrote in chapter 4, verse 6, For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. Christ Himself used the cities as an illustration. In Matthew ten fourteen and 15, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of your house or that city. Shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say unto you, it is more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In Matthew 11, verse 20 and following, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not change their mind. Woe to you! Chorzan, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which you, which have occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which have occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Luke chapter 17, verse 24 and following. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed all of them. It was the same as happened in the day of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. In other words, they were living their normal day-to-day lives and paying no attention to the gospel. But on that day, Lot went out of Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. The book of Jude, verse 7, is a parallel verse to what we've looked at today. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of that eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah then are good illustrations of the lake of fire and brimstone because as Moses described it and as uh, modern day archaeologists describe it, it's sulfur, fire and brimstone. Christ has provided us a warning an example through Sodom and Gomorrah. And while we wait, thinking maybe judgment has been delayed, as we saw last week, maybe he's nodded off to sleep, be assured that judgment is coming. And while we wait, we are to be about his business. And so as Peter introduces this epistle to us, to preach at us, he tells us, that we are sojourners and that we are living here alongside the locals so we can do the king's business, the business of God. He goes on then, Peter goes on to show us that our spiritual gifts define our ministry and our circumstances day by day 
both good and bad, then describe and identify the actions of that day. Peter was given then by the Holy Spirit guidance to us with these seven basic principles. Make it a principle to exhibit all earnestness and haste to fully supply in the sphere of your faith in the great and valuable promises of God provide that moral behavior that will acquire for us the highest opinion. And in the sphere of that moral behavior that will acquire for us the highest opinion, we are to fully develop then that process of study of the Word of God by which we can know His Word. And in the sphere of that process of the study of the Word of God, we are then to develop a contentment regardless of what our circumstances might be. And in the midst of that contentment, we are to then develop that attitude toward God, that godliness that Peter warned against in the text. We are to develop the proper attitude so that we do that which is godly. We do that which is pleasing to God. And it's in that context, it's in that sphere that we are able to develop a brotherly love. And in the sphere of brotherly love, we're able to develop a self-sacrificial love. But it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has his judgment revealed in examples in his word, we would do well to heed them and to share that with others, those that deny God, that deny his role in their life, that we might share with them these truths.